HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, Heritage Radio listeners. We're coming to you live from Charleston, South Carolina. I'm happy to introduce my guest today. He is Chef Mike Lotta. He grew up in New England. He worked his way through the kitchens of Boston, New Orleans, Atlanta, and France before landing here in Charleston in 1998. He's currently the chef partner of Fig Restaurant, which he opened in 2003 with his partner, Adam Adam Nemerau. In 2012, they opened The Ordinary, an oyster bar and seafood restaurant also located right here in Charleston. His restaurants have received numerous accolades and been nominated for many awards. He was nominated in 2007 and 2008 for the James Beard Foundation Award, Best Chef Southeast, and he took home the award in 2009. Mike, welcome to the line. Thank you. Thanks Happy for, to be here. Thanks for joining us on this live episode uh, on Heritage Radio Network. So let's start off by talking about the turning point in your life that really brought you into cooking. Something happened where you decided that you were on the wrong path and something steered you towards towards restaurant life what was that so as a young kid um i used to uh fall asleep every night to the radio and to djs and back in the 70s and 80s um there was a lot of disc jockeys that were a lot of fun to listen to so i thought i was going to be a, a broadcast journalist actually and from a young kid i wanted to cook um with my grandmother all the time like many chefs uh, often talk about but for me it was a real connection it was a real personal connection and the food that she cooked was very comforting and you know I came from a divorced family and I think like there's some kind of connection between food and comfort and like the way that I kind of emotionally managed my childhood um, so but as I uh, became older and started working as a young kid when I was 14 I was at a hamburger stand and I had my first job on the line, and it was like the first time in my life, my young life, where I felt really comfortable. Like, I, I felt really good behind the line. I felt like the energy, the camaraderie, the teamwork, the sense of urgency, and like, I loved multitasking, really connected with me. However, back then, there was not a, a, a strong, like, um, path to becoming a chef, and nobody that I knew had be- become a chef, and or even was a chef for that matter, so... The leap to think that I could go to culinary school, which I investigated a little bit, um, seemed kind of far-fetched. So I went down the path of least resistance, went to Northeastern University, started broadcast journalism, um, ended up getting accepted to UMass Amherst on my second time applying, um, and was in school, paying for it myself, right? Very expensive as as a 19-year-old kid. And 
on the way to school one day, I was riding the bus from Sunderland, Sutherland, Masta to Amherst, and I picked up the school newspaper, and I saw that Julia Child was going to speak that day on campus. And I was going to my least favorite class, and maybe my least favorite thing to do on the planet was intro to logic. And the professor was just incredibly boring. He made, like, um, the guy from Ferris Bueller seem like just, a, you know, an entertainer. Um, so I said, you know what, I'm going to skip my class. I'm going to go see Julia Child speak. And here I'm at 19, standing room only. She's got to be in her 80s at this point. She's got this room captivated. And the entire conversation that she was having with us was her life through food. And she was talking to us about how, what a blessed life she had led because food has taken her on so many cultural journeys and so many, and seen so many beautiful things and the pleasures of the table, the community aspect of it, um, and the, and her celebrity. And she said, you know, because of food, I've experienced all these things. And she told all these beautiful stories. And I was sitting there the entire time going, why am I doing what I'm doing? Because I really want to cook and I want to give it a shot. So that day, I was two weeks into my first semester at UMass Amherst. I turned around and I said, that's it. I'm not going to go back. I should have withdrawn because I still had to pay for that semester. Um, but then I said, you know what? I'm going to go back to, to Boston and I'm going to give it a shot. So <clears throat> yeah, I went right back to Boston, 19 years old, and just started working in kitchens with the mindset that I would become a chef one day. And man, I'll tell you what, that was 19, and by the time I was 20, so that led me from New Orleans, or from the vineyard, uh, which was seasonal, then I went to New Orleans in between, uh, got a really good job at one of the Brendan's restaurants, which is a very professional kitchen, first time I had to wear a chef hat and a chef coat, and I was really proud of that, um, and fell in love with the South so much that I ended up in Atlanta, pre-Olympics, so there's a lot of good buzz there, a lot of energy, a lot of new restaurants opening up. And I got a job at a fantastic French restaurant called Ciboulette, where um, Jean Bonchet, who was a famed, you might know this from Detroit, uh, he was Chicago, and he was one of the, he was like the Thomas Keller of the 1980s. He was like the number one chef in America. His protege opened a restaurant in Atlanta uh, called Ciboulette, and Jean Bonchet lent his name to that restaurant. And I guess was behind the stoves for about a year with his protege, Tom Cuhill. And they launched this restaurant, which with Bacchanalia, right, was, which is still amazing, had, was a fledgling restaurant at the time. But Cibolette and Bacchanalia were the one and two punch in Atlanta. And I was lucky enough to have, have worked in that kitchen. And it was like, I don't know what the equivalent would be, but imagine having a passion and feeling like you've connected to it. But really not like, and I, and I had bounced around a little bit, and I even got fired once for the first time in my life for trying to make a chef's food better than he made it because he wasn't a very good cook, and he didn't appreciate that at Risky all. Risky move. Yeah, it was not a good move, actually. Um, I understood that after he let me go. But. So once you, you, you make all these stops, and you're learning along the way, you're, you're gaining all this momentum, and you end up in Charleston, and, and you open up Fig, and... Fig was a farm-to-table restaurant before it was a cool thing to put on your menu that you use produce that was local. And you, you were doing that before it was what now everybody does. So you are a member of the Southern Foodways Alliance. You're the co-founder of Charleston Slow Food Convivium. Talk a little bit about your passion for uh, Southern food, for your, your love of product, and how that factored into the decisions that you made at FIG right when you opened? So th this is like, I'm super passionate about this for lots of reasons, but the first reason was, so at Cibolette, 
So Tom Kuhill was any the closest thing I ever had to a mentor was Tom. He was a young guy, but honestly, I think the early celebrity got to him, and he he wasn't in the kitchen very often. And and I became the chef de cuisine of that restaurant a year after I started. But he was kind of an absentee owner. God bless him. He's a great guy. But I found myself helming that kitchen and being in charge of the menu with no repertoire whatsoever, no classic training whatsoever. So I had to find a way to do the best work I could possibly do. So I said, well, I I know I have work ethic. I know I can keep my kitchen clean. I know I can treat people well, but I don't know how to cook that well. So what what, what can I do to, to, to better that effort was to find the best product. So I met a woman who grew lettuce. And I said, I want to buy this lettuce. It's delicious. I know I can make that salad good. And we became friends. And she introduced me to lots of people that grew produce. Before I knew it, I had a whole network of farmers that I bought from. And that defined my menu. And I said, well, if I buy the best stuff and I don't screw it up and I don't get in the way of it, then maybe I got a shot, right? But what I didn't realize was that the connections that I made to these people inspired me. Like I knew the story of their children, I knew the kids and their, and their kids' stories and why they grew what they grew, what they did before. Most of them were like second, like, like gentleman farmer type folks, like retired dentists, etc. So anyway, like this is how I developed my entire cooking philosophy is like get the best product you can, but don't get in its way, right? So when I came to Charleston, I was on the hunt for that person and that one person, that the lettuce person, you know, and her name was Celeste Albers and her and I became fast friends. She's the reason why I moved here, like why I was convinced because she was the most prolific grower that I'd ever seen. Her, her, her standards and her product, she no longer uh, farms vegetables, was beyond compare. Like if she, she wouldn't give you a blemished root vegetable uh, if her life depended on it. So every time she brought food to your back door, I was like, I now have the best chance of making somebody happy with this product. Like, like I can be a chef, and all I have to do is like not screw it up. So like how we teach our cooks to, to, to respect producers, to uh, respect the seasons, to be tuned in to the people that connect you to the land, etc., is our whole governing like, philosophy. And as we matured, and we were passionate cooks, right? We still love to cook. We got better and better and better. You know, we practiced and practiced and practiced and created great standards. But at FIG, we rotated that menu. So if Celeste came to my back door and she said, yeah, I know I promised you all this cabbage, but it ain't going to happen. It's not good enough. And I've got this dish on the menu that's, you know, a cabbage-centric dish. And I have service that night. It's when it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, well, I guess i got to do something different. So it took us a long time to learn how to like buy ahead a little bit. So we didn't have to change the menu, be forced to change the menu. But Fig became the restaurant that reflected the season, reflected what we did locally. And, you know, that, that, that's something that's been done all over the world forever. But we just happened to be, because of my inability to cook, is how I kind of backed in to being that kind of a chef. But what I realized was like the most important uh element or one of the one of the most parts of the equation in the restaurant business is your link to where you are and like subconsciously i started to learn that and didn't even know it until i kind of stepped back one day and i said well look look at what i'm doing like this is a mirror of my region right now and what we're doing and not so much in the food ways themselves like I wasn't like the best um, spokesperson for southern cooking because I was from New England and again I didn't know how to cook really um, but so I leaned on like most guys European sensibilities so I did a lot of French and Italian stuff Mediterranean um, but with all that local product and that's that's what Fig 
that's what started Fig, and, and that, that's how we started Fig, and Fig still does that to this day. And I think that we do a wonderful job of now really mentoring new farmers and teaching them how to talk to chefs and, and um, giving them the best chance of success from a purchasing standpoint. And we also try to help them by spreading the word and making sure there's plenty of people that get their product. What's very interesting about, uh, about any chef is the time commitment and also what it takes to just make one restaurant successful. You've opened The Ordinary five years ago. You now have two locations. What's uh, become very difficult for you as you split your time between two restaurants, and how has that impacted uh, the staffing and your ability to delegate and, and trust people? A chef is a creative leadership position, and then you have to, at a certain point, transition into a a business owner as well. Some people do it from the beginning. Some people, it takes them a long time to fall into that role. How long did it take you, if you have, become comfortable with that role of having other people sometimes do the execution um, of your creative vision? So, I mean, that's right. There's a lot to that question. (laughs) Uh, So, I'll fast forward to like my end goal seems to be now when I want to go to my happy place when stress is really getting to me, I picture myself in a, like a little woodworking studio in the mountains, sanding a piece of wooden furniture and crafting something out of a piece of wood that I found in the, in the, in the forest because I'm a craftsman, right? And I love to craft food and I love to take raw materials. And that's kind of like how I became to, you know, to, to be where I am today. To delegate everything out is very difficult because you realize that that is not what I do for, that's not what I signed up for. However, I'm fortunate enough to be successful in the sense that I've got two restaurants that people enjoy working in and people enjoy eating in. And I have to remind myself daily that I'm blessed to have that scenario. So the delegation process that like sharing the vision, watching it executed through other people's hands, can be joyful and painful, you know, and there are some days where I feel like a king and some days where I feel like the jester. Um, But it's a good ride, you know, and it is what it is. I don't think you'll ever really be comfortable, and I long for the days where I can make the soup good. Um, But, you know, the victories now seem to be more important than just making that plate of food delicious. The ordinary, when you opened, you... You made a specific decision about the menu. Uh, it was gonna, it's a seafood-centric restaurant. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach what goes on the menu at The Ordinary? And also talk a little bit about, just because some of us aren't lucky enough to be here in Charleston and they can't visit your restaurant and, and see it, talk about sort of visually what you had intended to do at the beginning and what it kind of morphed into uh, once you located the space. So originally it was, so, you know, people would ask me, hey, what kind of restaurant is Fig? And that's the hardest question to answer because, you know, I liken it now to like, hey, listen, it's like, what kind of a musician is Ryan Adams? Well, he's a singer-songwriter. He's, he sings the music that he writes, and he's his own little brand. And I, I think there's all kinds of restaurants, but Fig to me has always been like the singer-songwriter kind of, you know, the food side of it. You know, Adam is my business partner, awesome guy. But from the menu standpoint, uh, it's been like my little passion right from from day one. It's so difficult to explain that to people, and they're like, "Just tell me what I'm going to eat when I get there." So the ordinary is was the answer to that was like, "It's a seafood restaurant," you know, like pure and simple. 
but inspired by the people that we've collected, if I can use collected, like uh, over the years uh, that are the best shrimpers, the best crabbers, the best fishermen. And we literally give you a slice of what we call, you know, the term now that's thrown around, meroir. You know, you can really taste the Charleston palate at the ordinary because that's wild food, right? The seafood's wild. And that's what it tastes like in the Southeast. And we try to express that fully at that restaurant. Um, and, you know, for the most part, we have an incredible resource here. And to try to tell that story the best we can um, is super rewarding because, like, if you, if for the people that can't go to Charleston and eat at the ordinary, uh, we have the best seafood here. It's amazing. I'm from the Northeast, lived on Martha's Vineyard, and I tell you, like, my heart always kind of went there, right, for the species of fish that we would eat there and the clams and the, and the oysters from the Northeast. But I've come to learn that what we have down here is, like, really an untapped resource. People don't consider the Southeast um, to be such a, just a, such a, a bountiful uh, region for seafood, but the species that we get here are plenty, and, and uh, the shellfish is second to none. As a, as a young restaurant owner myself and someone who's it's more starting off in the industry. I'm always intrigued about a mentor or uh, someone inside or outside of the kitchen. Could be an owner. It could be a, a teacher at a school. Someone who's had a lot of impact on you. Can you speak to uh, who that person may be? And you know, do you think about them every week when you're at, at your restaurant? Or is there a specific um, sort of amount of wisdom that they imparted to you that you carry with you? Uh, through your businesses and, and through your daily life in the restaurant? So I'm a self-taught guy. So going back to Cibolet in that story about how I kind of came to cook the way that I, that I cook, it was a very much a self-taught exercise. Um, so, you know, I, I don't have that person's voice in my head and I long for it for a long time, especially the early years at Fig. I, I just craved having a coach somebody to say good job or do better because I never knew how I was doing and um, regardless of whatever you hear from the guests I think you're your own worst critic so you know over the years I've just kind of gleaned like little bits of from people here and there and I mentioned Celeste Albers earlier the grower that I've uh, had a relationship with now for 20 years where her standards and her excellence and her like literally like to her you know to her detriment was so particular and so like focused on the quality of her product that it, it inspired me. And, and literally all the people that we deal with on a daily basis, and I know this probably sounds, I don't know if this sounds trite or expected, um, but everybody that we buy from has the same values. That's why, we're, that's why we're in business together, we're partners. And when I talk to Mark Marhefka, my fisherman, uh, that lands here in Shem Creek, and we talk about post-harvest handling of seafood and how it best keeps to the restaurant, and we work on that program for two years for him to find out the best way to take fish out of the water and then to hold it only for the day or two that he's on the water and bring it to me, and through feedback and the process of him needing me to inform him um, on the best way to do his business uh, or conduct his business, and then he informs me by providing me with the best product, it's like we realize that we're in a partnership together. And then when, when we have that seafood in the restaurant or that produce in the restaurant, we have this reverence for each other and the product that kind of like gives us our, that's our compass. You know, that's how we decide what to do with everything. I know it's hard to really 
choose a dish that's your favorite or something that encompasses the vision of the restaurant. But if there is something on at, on the menu at either one of the restaurants right now that you can just quickly describe for the listeners that you feel is a, a wonderful representation of the type of food you're trying to do right now in Charleston uh, that sort of exemplifies what you've been putting forth at, at Figure at The Ordinary, if you could just walk us through it really quickly. So there's lots of different kinds of chefs, right? Some guys can pump out creative, innovative food all the time. <clears throat> I'm more like Peter Frampton, right? I wrote one album, and it's his greatest hits album. And people are like, well, does he have anything else? I'm not sure. I, I've had the, the luck of coming up with a few dishes um, that have resonated over the years. And for us to be able to produce them day in and day out without getting tired of them, I think is a testimony to how we feel about them as well. The one dish that most recently, in the last several years, has gotten the most notoriety is the smoked oyster dish we do at The Ordinary. And so what I, I went camping a couple years ago with a buddy of mine in uh, Northern California, and we sat around um, on this hike, and he, I said, what do we have to eat? And he said, I've got these smoked oysters in a can. I said, oh, sweet. I'm like, great. I'm so excited about that. And I didn't want to eat them at all. He popped them open. I ate one, and I was like, well, shit, I'm pretty hungry, and that's really tasty. So I got back to the ordinary. I was like, I want to recreate that somehow. So I started by taking shucked oysters, right, the gallon oysters, and spreading them over a, like a perforated hotel pan and smoking them. And they turned out mushy. So I said, let me elevate this whole concept. So I created an oyster in the half shell, smoked them in the half shell, and we treat them more like a crudo. We toss them with lemon juice and olive oil and celery, and we serve them kind of like uh, tailgate style on a baked saltine with uh, creme fraiche and... Uh, hot sauce that we make. So that's that's kind of become this uh, fun dish to have. Yeah. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here on uh, Heritage Radio Network live from Charleston. Thank you. Uh, everybody, uh, enjoy your time in Charleston. And for those of you listening at home, we'll have a lot more content for you over the next couple days. Thank you to Springer Mountain Farms, Big Green Egg, Wisconsin Cheese, and the Julia Child Foundation for making Heritage Radio Network on tour at Charleston Wine and Food Festival possible. I'm Eli Sussman for Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio is a member-supported nonprofit based in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Listen to over 10,000 episodes of food radio podcasts and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy that.